morning. So glad that you've chosen to join us. I really pray that this morning you're going to feel connected to God and even to your church family, even though this is a virtual service. Uh, it means a lot that we're doing this together, and that we're worshiping together and hearing God's word together. We're in the middle of a, of a series called Establish, and we're going through the whole Bible in 31 weeks. And so this is a big deal for us. And the goal is to give you uh, an, an overarching picture of what God's story is all about. And so today we pick up the story. It's a, it's a big moment in the history of Israel. And that after spending years, uh, 400 years in captivity, uh, they then spent 40 years in the desert. And now is the big moment when they're finally preparing to enter into the promised land, to overthrow their enemies, and to take up residence in the land that God has given them. So this is a big deal. They're given marching orders in Joshua chapter 1 that explains the attitude that they're to have going forward uh, into this new land. And so this is what's said in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. It says, After Moses, the servant of the Lord, died, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. So Joshua is the guy who really shadowed Moses for years. And uh, he's the one now taking over the job of leading the people of Israel. And the Lord said, My servant Moses is dead. Now you and all these people go across the Jordan River into the land I am giving to the Israelites. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wow, what an incredible promise as you're uh, getting ready to face your enemies to know that the presence of God is with them. And so this is the command now that God gives to Joshua, be strong and brave. Well, that's appropriate, isn't it? They're about to face a hostile enemy. It's really appropriate that they need to be strong and they need to be brave. But then listen to what's said next. It says, be sure to obey all the teachings my servant Moses gave you. If you follow them exactly, you will be successful in everything you do. What we find in this passage is a, uh, is a command to put in their lives, uh, to put in the center of their lives, God's word. And that the only way that you're going to have success moving forward, the only way you're going to overthrow evil, establish God's kingdom on earth, on earth, is if you obey everything that God has told them to do. So their success is directly tied to following and obeying God's word. Now, we also are in a battle. Our battle is not, as we're going to read in a moment, is not against flesh and blood, but we're also in a battle against evil. And listen to how it's described, and you'll see some similarities. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Our fight is not against people on earth, so that's the difference, but against the rulers and authorities. Now, these rulers and authorities... Are, are, are spiritual, they've already been subjected to the authority of God, but they still are on a leash, as it were, and they still have a bit of freedom. Against the rulers and authorities and the powers of this world's darkness, against the spiritual powers of evil in the heavenly world. So our enemy is never people, and that alone is a good thing to know, but we do have an enemy, and it's spiritual forces and powers that do work through people, 
but they are, in a sense, positioned in the heavenly realms, meaning in, in God's reality. And, uh, and it's real. There are real demonic forces acting against you and I every day. So that is why, in verse 13, you need to put on God's full armor. The idea here is that we actually need to be clothed in God. It's not just that he gives us some resources. This armor of God is really a, a, a clothing of the very presence of God. And then the different weapons and uh, defenses that are, are described are really just dimensions in a sense of who God is. So we're to actively put on God because we are powerless against this kind of foe. You know, if, the, if our enemies were physical in some way, then maybe we could exert human power to overcome those enemies. But these are spiritual enemies. And because they're spiritual, we need spiritual power. And so we need to be clothed with God's presence. Then it goes on in verse uh, 14. So stand strong with the belt of truth tied around your waist. Now, it seems as though I, uh, I was taught for many years that this belt is kind of uh, people wear a longer um, clothing and they need to kind of tuck that clothing into their belt in order to do battle. Uh, there, there might be some truth to that, but in the sequence of, of what to put on, this is more like an underlayer that's a leather um, protection to cover your abdomen, probably the most vulnerable part of your body, that this... Uh, this belt of truth is almost like an apron that covers you across your midsection. So it's a form of protection. The truth of God protects us in our, in our most vulnerable places. And take the sword of the Spirit, verse 17, which is the Word of God. So this is the only proactive weapon that's described in this list. We're not going through the whole list, but it's the only one that is actually uh, Offense, not just defense. And so God's word is described in two dimensions. Protection, defense, and then offense, the word of God is a sword, which is the, is, is the uh, empowering presence of God through his word. So what's the point in all of this? Is that the Bible is our ultimate power over and protection from evil. The Bible is our protection and our power. If you were to summarize uh, what God's word gives to us, it's these two dimensions. The Bible keeps us safe and it allows us from evil and allows us to push against evil that God's kingdom would be established in us and around us. So the, the question that we need to ask to begin with is, does the Bible feel that way to you? You know, when you, when you think of God's word, you think, this is my protection more than clever arguments, more than even physical weapons, more than, uh, than willpower. The thing that keeps me safe is God's word. And the thing that allows me to conquer evil in my life and even in the world around me is the word of God. What a fascinating way to view this Bible is that it's our protection and our power. So, when we are confused or condemned, this is our hope. 
our protection from not knowing which end is up and, and what to believe and what to think. And when we feel condemned, this becomes our protection. When we are tempted, again, in the, in the face of temptation, do you see the Bible as your primary source of defense against the powers of darkness that try to tempt you, bringing evil desires into our heart? When we're mistreated by others, when evil comes from the outside, from other people, and attacks us and assaults us, um, when we feel mistreated, do you believe that the Bible is your best defense against the sin in the world that's around you and that comes against you? It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard to believe that some, some words that were written so long ago can actually have that much power over uh, evil temptations, over being mistreated by evil, toward having thoughts that come into our mind that are not uh, healthy and that condemn us and distance us. Well, this is what the Bible is to us. And so how is this true? How can the Bible become the source of power and protection that we need it to be? Let's look at three things this morning, and we're going to unpack uh, how to approach the Bible and, and what the Bible gives us. So how is the Bible our power and protection? First, it is our power over demonic lies. The Bible stands in a unique place in that it gives us the power to defeat demonic lies. You know, I was thinking about, you know, what are demonic lies? Like, what does that even mean? And I was thinking of the, uh, of the U.S. election. And I was, I was thinking about all the different um, commentary that I read on social media. And uh, the more that you read kind of the, the, the right-wing and, and left-wing agendas, the more you hear politicians speak, it seems as though truth is used for self-serving purposes. And because it's used for self-serving purposes, we doubt its veracity. We doubt the truth. Because there's something inside of us that says truth needs to be bigger than something that we use for our own personal agenda. That somehow we can even take facts, and when we use them for self-centered purposes, they end up somehow becoming lies, don't they? Because of the motive out of which we use them. Uh, I was, uh, I was doing some, some reading on, on what a lie is, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. I, I've always assumed, and I think it's still true, that, that a lie is somehow a deception. And so this author was saying, yes, of course, a lie is a deception. But more than that, it's a betrayal of trust. Isn't that an interesting way to view a lie? A lie... Uh, leans on trust and leverages trust to, to bring about deceit. It betrays trust. You trust me, and I'm going to use that to somehow get you to uh, be vulnerable to me and to believe things that aren't true. It's incredibly evil, isn't it? That it's a betrayal of trust because what motivates a lie is a self-serving agenda. And so this is what we're confronted with in society today, isn't it? Who do we trust? It seems like everybody has a self-serving agenda. And there, there seem to be, 
even as, as, as short as, I mean, 30 years ago, although it's always been true, of course, but that somehow, even in the media, we thought that the media was there to kind of present neutral facts. But people have discovered, and rightly so, that there are no neutral facts, are they? That are there? there there's, really, there's always something else going on. Even the way that we describe something always has a bias to it. And so society is in a place right now where we just don't know who to trust. And so there's this, uh, this, this mental insecurity that what am I going to build my beliefs on? That everybody seems to have an agenda, including me. And so how do I know what's reliable? How do I know what I can rely on? that isn't self-serving, but loving and kind and good and pure and right. How am I going to know this? Well, when we see what society is like and what our own hearts are like, well, it makes sense how much we need the Bible. Because only God is not self-serving. Only God is pure in every way. That means that anything that he says or thinks does not have a self-centered, self-serving agenda attached to it. In Psalm 12, verse 6, I just love this. The words of the Lord are flawless. Flawless. So, when we read the words of the Lord, these words, not just the ideas, not just the, the concepts, the very words themselves are described as flawless. What does that mean? It means that they're pure, that there's no self-serving agenda attached to them, that they reflect the heart and mind of God. And God's heart is always loving, always good. And that makes his words flawless and trustworthy. And what they do is they tell us the truth of, about, of at least two things. First, they tell us the truth about God. In Psalm 12, 6, it says, The words of the Lord are flaws. And then it goes on to say in verse 7, You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked. This is that protection uh, idea of what the Word of God does. That the Word of God is flawless. And I can depend on the Word of God to keep me safe. He will protect the needy, protect the humble, protect us from wickedness. And I can de depend on these words to protect me from evil. Why? Because they're God's words, and they're describing who he is. And so the more that I know who he is, the more I'm able to trust in his unfailing love and know that he has victory over evil. But the Bible is the, is the window or doorway into knowing the truth of who God is, that he's all-loving and that he's all-powerful. What it also does is teach us about ourselves. In, uh, in 2 Timothy, verse 3.16, it's a very famous verse that describes uh, the Bible as being inspired by God. This is what it says. All scripture is inspired by God. What a powerful statement. This is not human invention. It's not human opinion. It's the very words of God. The human authors were inspired by the living God to reflect his heart and his mind. And is useful for teaching. Notice the two things now that it's useful for. For showing people what is wrong in their lives and for teaching them how to live right. Without the Bible, we don't have an accurate mirror to see ourselves. 
to know if we're, if we're deceived, with we have, with, whether we use truth or facts in a self-serving way. We need the Word of God in order to see what's really going on in the motivations of our heart and to show us how to be truly loving and caring, how to worship God, care for the people around us. Without God's Word, we're just left in ignorance, not even being able to know who God is or know what our hearts are really like or how to live in a righteous and loving way. We're lost without God's Word. Wow. So, how, do, how, do, how does the Bible benefit us how does it enable us to defeat these demonic lies, these self-serving agendas that attack us all day long, that make it so we don't know who to trust or what to rely upon? It's only as we come to the Bible in humility and we surrender to its authority. We put it above ourselves. You know, I was, I was talking to a friend uh, the other day, and he says, I've come to the conclusion that all of the Old Testament is irrelevant for today, that the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, have some benefit, and it's only the red letters, only the words of Jesus that I will treat as authoritative. Well, the first thing that comes through my mind is, what an arbitrary decision. How do you know that? Where does it say in the Bible, only trust the red letters, only trust the Gospel? the Gospels. No, it says to, that, that all of Scripture is inspired by God, that it's not a matter of human opinion. And so uh, we need to come to the Bible in humility, saying, uh, I surrender my opinions to you. I'm not going to pick and choose what I like and don't like. Then now I'm the authority again. And my agenda is always self-serving. My only freedom is to rely on the Word of God for it to be truth to my soul. So as we come to the Bible in humility, it will conquer self-deception. It will conquer uh, uh, the demonic lies that we believe, that we hear. It's our only freedom, is the Word of God. Wow, what a powerful gift we hold in our hands. Number two, so first of all, it's our power over demonic lies, those self-serving agendas that come out of us and attack us from the outside. Only the Bible can give us the truth about who God is and who we are. Number two, it is our power over sinful desires. First of all, it's our power over demonic lies. Now it's our power over sinful desires. How often do you feel powerless over your desires? Doesn't it feel sometimes as though uh, whatever comes our way, whether it's uh, defeat or anger or jealousy or, or sexual lust, doesn't it feel as though we're at the mercy of our desires? And that when they come in a wave, all we can do is obey them. That desires seem to trump everything else, and it seems... For some reason, that it's always the evil desires that have the greatest power, don't they? Uh, we are under the bondage of demonic powers and their lusts and desires. And we can feel powerless in the face of them, can't we? Well, look at what's said in Titus chapter 2, verse 12. 
It says the gospel, and this is summarizing summarizing the previous verse in the verse uh, after. The gospel teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. The Bible, the gospel, the word of God enables us to, to, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that this Bible can change uh, your desires from being worldly passions to godly and upright and loving? Do you believe that this Bible has the power to actually change desire, not just you know, mental ideas, but our hearts. Well, uh, we need to approach the Bible in the right way for it to accomplish that. Just as we had to approach the Bible in humility for it to reform and renew our minds, we now need to approach the Bible uh, with our hearts in order for it to renew our desires. If we don't approach the Bible with our hearts, with vulnerability, transparency, looking to have our affections changed, then the Bible will be of no use in the area of worldly passions. We need to know how to engage in Bible reading that engages our hearts, not just our minds. Isn't this interesting? That it's possible to misuse the Bible simply by not engaging with it at a heart level. I remember talking to somebody once, and I, I asked them, you know, you know, how regularly do you read the Bible? And they go, well, not very much. And I go, oh, tell me about that. Why, you know, why is that? And they says, well, I already know the stories. And so I know the stories, and so what good is it to just kind of rehash the stories? Well, first of all, I, didn't think that, I don't think they knew the stories. They knew a couple stories, but that's beside the point. The point is, is that they thought it was a collection of stories that they should memorize that might be helpful at some point as a kind of a a moral compass. The reason why we read our Bibles is we read them with our hearts to let our affections shift from worldly passion to godly desires and affections, to actually love God and to love others. And that the Bible is designed to teach us. And this, this word teach can be misunderstood because we can think it's merely intellectual. But it teaches our hearts as much as it teaches our minds. And as we, as we read about our Father, understand His will, know how He behaves towards others, our affections are stirred. But we only can have our affections stirred if we read the Bible in that way, if we read it with our hearts as well as our minds. So, uh, the Bible gives us power over demonic lies when we read it with humility. It gives us power over sinful desires when we read it with our heart, longing to know how to, uh, in a sense, emotionally engage with God. And finally, it is our power over evil attack, over... Uh, being mistreated by people around us, that their sinful desires, which are, are authored by demons, come against us to attack us. 
This is probably the, the, the truest thing that correlates to what uh, the Israelites had to face in Joshua's day, that there are, are evil people bent on destroying us. Well, we still experience this today, don't we? Now, they normally don't come, although they sometimes do, with clubs and swords, but we still experience demonic attack through the hands of others, those around us, and those even, you know, in our closest proximity, because we all are still, you know, warring against evil in our own souls. So the question, this final question is, how do you cope with being sinned against? Think now of things that have been done against you that are, that are purely evil. Uh, they, they can't be excused. It wasn't ignorance. People did wrong, sinful things towards you. It wasn't your fault. You didn't ask for it. There's no way that we deserve evil against us ever. So uh, it's, 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 you know, the, the enemy wants to accuse us sometimes and blame us for these things. But how do you, how do you cope with the evil that comes against you? Do you blame yourself? Do you condemn yourself? Saying, well, I guess I deserve evil against me. Do you self-protect and say, I will never trust again. I'll never trust a man again. I'll never open up my heart to others. I will keep my, my heart closed. Is this how we treat others? Through self-protection. It's the only, I'll control others. I'll overpower others with my intelligence, with my physical strength, with um, my emotion. I'll be dominant so as not to be weak, so as to protect myself from evil. Is that our conclusion? I think it often is, isn't it? That we think that the, that the best defense against evil against us is just to be stronger and to overcome it, to fight power with power and to somehow become stronger inside of ourselves that that will be where our freedom lies. Well, it's a lie. Listen to what John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32 says. If you continue to obey my teaching. Now, that, that's all important. Continue to obey my teaching. You are truly my followers. Then you will know the truth. Only as you continue to obey will you know the truth. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. How do we get free? from not just the stuff that's inside of us, the evil inside of us, but the evil that's actually around us is through obeying the word of God. What a fascinating defense against evil. But this is exactly what we see in Romans uh, 12, verse 21. It says to overcome evil with good. The only way to overcome the evil that comes against us is with goodness with obeying God's word, doing what he says to do, and that I will submit to what you say to do instead of what evil would demand of me to fight back. Here's the point, is that the Bible is useless without obedience. The Bible is useless without humility. It's useless without obeying, uh, engaging with our hearts. And... It's useless unless we do what it says. Uh, we were noticing there was a few of us talking about uh, D groups 
And uh, I can only, I've only been in, you know, D groups with men in them, so this is what we were talking about. And we made an observation that, that one of the things that men tend to do is take ideas in Scripture and then make them abstract. You know, what does it really mean? And how does that really apply? And, you know, and it's just all very theoretical. But unless the Word of God ends up in obedience, meaning that our behavior changes, well, it's useless. And so, what an interesting way to approach the Word of God. We approach it in our, with our minds in humility, with our, our hearts in affection, and with our hands, in a sense, in obedience. So, as with Israel, in conclusion, God has given us marching orders to fight against evil. Do you know this? Do you know that you have been commanded by God, just as God commanded Joshua to, to tell the Israelites, we are to go to war. Our war is not against flesh and blood, but against uh, evil powers and principalities that r- is ravaging the world around us. And if everything wrong in this world finds its roots in a demonic agenda that must be opposed and that we must stand against. How do we fight this war that we're in, whether we like it or not? We conquer evil by engaging in God's word with our head, our heart, and our hands. We will fall, we will be unprotected, and will not be able to defeat evil on our own. We need God's word to deliver us from demonic lies, to renew our mind. So we approach God's word with our head, saying, in humility, set me free from a self-serving agenda that, uh, that betrays trust, that uses facts for my own purposes. Set me free. So I read the Bible to have my mind cleansed, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that we have our mind renewed. And then I read this Bible with my heart. And I say, Father, I want to draw near to you. I want to, I want to love you. And I want to know how to receive your love. I want a relationship with you. And so I read this as a love letter to draw close to you. And so I open up my heart to you in vulnerability. I let my emotions be stirred by the stories that you tell, by the, by the, by the things that you want me to hear. I let my heart be stirred. I don't read it coldly. I read it emotionally. And I, and I wrestle through these words because I desire to draw closer to you. And then I read it with my hands. I don't go, oh, well, that was interesting, and then go on living my life. I, I read this in the, in the expectation that this is going to change the, the next decision that I make and the decision after that, that this will be my source of what I obey. I don't obey my flesh. I obey God's word. Uh, I, was a, uh, I was a woodwork teacher, a shop teacher, so I've, I've used lots of tools over the years. And there's something that I've noticed about tools is that they only uh, work when you use them properly. Uh, even a hammer. I'll, I'll watch people that don't know how to swing a hammer. And they're just, just with all of their power, you know, pounding in a nail. 
and they don't know that the, that the weight, you know, of the head of the hammer, you use that to your advantage. And you let the weight of the hammer drive in the, uh, the nail. You don't just, you know, work up a sweat. Uh, but every tool is like that. If you know how to use the tool, it becomes hugely beneficial. And if you don't know how to use the tool, it always feels like you're struggling against it. You know, if you imagine those two-handed saws, those, where one guy's on one side and one is on the other, and they need to, if you don't use that properly, it just bends and warps and never cuts any wood. Uh, this Bible only works if you use it properly, if you use it with your head, with your heart, and with your hands. Listen to what is said a few verses earlier in Joshua chapter 1. This is God speaking to, uh, to Joshua. It says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Wow, always on your lips. It's just right there. How are, you ever, how are we ever going to get this on our lips if it doesn't get into our hearts and minds? Well, it goes on. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Here's that success again. Success over demonic powers. How? By meditating on it. What the word meditate means is, uh, in Hebrew, it means to grumble. It means to uh, imagine a, a really good steak, and you're just, you're savoring uh, every bite. It's this, it's this slow, um, quiet meditation. You're not just consuming it, you're, you're, you're savoring it, and you're, you're letting its tastes uh, just rest on your palate. If we don't meditate on the Word of God day and night, we will be ravaged by evil in and around us. There's no other way out. It's to savor this with our thoughts, with our affections, with our behavior, that this would inform all those dimensions. This is what I pray for us today. Oh, Father, please forgive us for approaching your word as a how-to manual, an, an ancient book that we feel obligated to pick up now and then. Would you give us the grace to read your word in humility, with our head wanting to be free of self-serving agendas. We don't want to believe demonic lies that twist and distort. Your word is flawless, and so we humble ourselves. We humble our arrogant opinions. We humble our minds, and we surrender our thoughts to your word. We surrender our hearts to your word. And we see that there are so many desires that just come against us all day long that we just feel powerless over. Oh, Father, this reveals to us that we've not meditated enough on your word, that we've not let your word stir our affections to have an affection that competes against worldly affections. We need a new affection. And we thank you for giving us your word that can transform our hearts, soften our hearts, fill our hearts with your spirit and your presence. And finally, we thank you for your word 
that sets us free from sinful behaviors, from combating evil with evil, but that we can stand against the evil around us by choosing to do what your word says to do, that we will obey it, that we will have a change of behavior. Father, would you give us the grace to approach your word in all of these levels, trusting that as we do, it will transform our lives, it will set us free from darkness and bring us into your marvelous light. Thank you for the gift of your word and for the presence of your spirit that we find in that place. In Jesus' name, amen.